Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Isaiah chapter 10. Let's begin in verses 1 through 4, and then you're going to see verses uh, 5 and into much of the rest of the chapter in, in, um, in another manifestation in this series. But I want to begin with verses 1 through 4 and then pick up later in the text. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the needy among my people of justice so that widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. What will you do on the day of punishment when devastation comes from far away? Who will you run to for help? Where will you leave your wealth? There will be nothing to do except crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. We saw this in the previous devotion. That came up three times in the previous passage and it's still not done. It still continues into chapter 10 and you're going to see it even more so. So God will deal with corrupt leadership, but even the, what, uh, what did verse, uh, chapter 9 describe, even like the widows and the fatherless as it, godless evildoers. That's chapter, chapter 9, verse 17. So even as he deals with the citizenry and the hoi polloi, if you will, the, those who are in charge of the system have, have particularly come under scrutiny by God and will particularly be held and, and taken, uh, taken to task for their negligence. There is a principalizing bridge to be crossed before we can directly apply chapter 10 to modern day America, but it's not that hard to do. The care of the poor has been largely put upon the church. In modern cultures, we no longer live under the old covenant, and so taxes and tithes, they're different things now. In Malachi 3, they were, they were one and the same. You lived in ancient Israel and you gave 10% at least because that's what God told you to do. And this was robbing God if you didn't. Today in the New Testament, see 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When we give, we give whatever's in our heart to give. And then God blesses us as we give. But in Old Testament Israel, the context was, okay, you've been, you have been provided by the design of God financially that you are to preside over this theocratic nation who serves God. Right? And if you fail to do this, if you fail to look after the poor, uh, God's going to deal with you for it. Fast forward to modern day America, we're not in a the theocracy. We live in a nation that's built upon a the theological argument. It's the most exquisite, you know, uh, the most exquisite uh, constitution ever written by man. It's, it's incredible. And it's all based on a Christian idea, a, a, a theological argument that our rights come from God. It's incredible. It's amazing. But you cannot perfectly equate the kings of Judah with President Joe Biden because they're in different covenants. The kings of Judah were the original audience squarely in the crosshairs of Isaiah. Where we do cross this bridge and we can rightly apply this is that for our own governments, they will one day face the justice of God. Romans chapter 13 says that these, these authorities have been established by God. They have now, they've now inherited the duties that were once given in Old Testament Israel, but were no longer living as Israel. All right? In the New Covenant, 
um, now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. This is like the, the whole point of the book of Romans, where we've shifted now from God's elect nation of Israel to now everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Because of Jesus, now Gentiles can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And not just in the isolated capacities like where God poured out his spirit upon Nineveh through Jonah or God saved Rahab from among the Canaanites, but now literally everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's incredible. So here we are in a New Testament wherein we're no longer presided over by ceremonial or societal laws as prescribed in the Old Testament. And so we can't perfectly expect, you know, our modern day rulers to abide by the same standard, to be taken a task to the same extent. But we do know that in ultimate justice, God's coming again and leadership will answer to him for its own corruption. So this is, this is woe to those who have, uh, who have neglected, you know, the needy. They've deprived people of justice and people haven't been able to get a fair trial. So God's going to deal with them, but in all of this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. Let's go now to verse 20 because uh, uh, verses, verses 5 through 19 are going to appear elsewhere in our curriculum. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed, justice overflows. For throughout the land, the Lord God of armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. Therefore, the Lord God of armies says this, My people who dwell in Zion do not fear Assyria, though they strike you with a rod and raise their staff over you as the Egyptians did. In just a little while, my wrath will be spent, and my anger will turn to their destruction, and the Lord of armies will brandish a whip against him as he did when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and he will raise his staff over the sea as he did in Egypt. On that day, his burden will fall from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because your neck will be too large. Assyria has come to Ayath and has gone through Migron, storing their equipment at Michmash. They crossed over the ford, saying, We will spend the night at Geba. And the people of Ramah are trembling. Those at Gibeah have, of Saul have fled. Cry aloud, daughter of Galim. Listen, Lysha. Anathoth is miserable. Madamena has fled. The inhabitants of Gabim have sought refuge. Today the Assyrians will stand at Nob, shaking their fists at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power, and the tall trees will be cut down, the high trees felled. He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon, with its majesty, will fall. So this imagery is going to transition into chapter 11 famous chapter where we see this imagery of the shoot growing from the stump of Jesse. We talked about this in our sermon uh, this Sunday. You can see that that imagery picks up in the very next verse, the very opening verse of chapter 11. We see the, the axe imagery again in verse 34, the final verse of chapter 10. And then this gives way to what happens from this stump is a shoot grows from it. And this is going to be the lineage from Jesse to his son, King David, and then all the way through his line of descendants until 
Joseph and Mary and Jesus. So uh, as bleak as these, these, final, these final verses are, it's going to arrive at Jesus. It always arrives at Jesus. Every passage, no matter how difficult to interpret in the Old Testament, is rightly interpreted through the lens of Jesus because it's a prophecy and that prophecy is fulfilled only in Jesus. So there's no other right hermeneutic by which to interpret it than Jesus. So I want to go back and look at something else earlier in verses 20 through 22 because there's something here parallel to the way that Isaiah was told by God to name his children. In verse 21, Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. This was, this was parallel to uh, Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah's, possibly his first son's name. And it evokes the promise of God upon Abraham, this old, old man, that he's going to create a nation through him that's as numerous as the sand of the sea. The modern state of things, however, is only a remnant will return. For, the thought, uh, for uh, throughout the land, the Lord God of armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. He's decreed this ahead of time. And that's the purpose of the prophecy, to go on record ahead of time. If you place a bet on a Seahawks game, you can't just walk up to someone and say, hey, I knew that they would win, give me 200 bucks. Okay, first of all, don't, don't be like that. But also, like, that's not, that's not legitimate because there was no decree ahead of time. There was, no, there was no written contract ahead of time. There was no money put on escrow ahead of time. In, in this biblical prophecy, God is decreeing what will happen and then he's doing it. We see this in the, the book of Ezekiel, for example. God says that I'm going to do this and then once I've done it, you'll know that I am the Lord God and above me there is no other. So then we look back on fulfilled prophecy. And rightly, as God said should be the case, we look at it and we say God's decreed that he would do it and then he did it. And now we know he is the Lord God and above him there is no other. In this regard, uh, as a presuppositional apologist, I do have to rightly veer into the realm of the evidentialist apologist. Because that was explicitly what God said his purpose was in accomplishing certain things. That's why he would decree things and then accomplish them. That was, that was clearly, I mean, repeatedly, emphatically, thematically, over and over again, the purpose of bringing Israel back to its own land and frankly, like resurrecting them as a country so that we would look upon it and know that he decreed it and then he did it. He alone did this. The Bible alone predicted it. Obviously, he's the Lord God and above him, there is no other. If you want to look at that as evidentialist apologetics, I guess you could, but I would say that's eternally more epic than dinosaur footprints and limestone. Okay, that's God sovereignly saying what he's going to do and then doing it. And then reading the book wherein he predicted it and then just practicing basic comprehension. Okay, this, this goes way beyond what is typically demeaned within evidentialist apologetics. Like, look at it, see it, observe it, and then respond the way that God said you should respond, which is, He's done this, He has decreed it, He alone is Lord God. Because there's no other, quote-unquote, holy text in the world. There's no other real prophet in the world. There's no other truth in the world. Like, no, no other religious text can do this. The Bible alone does this. Now, the typical response to evidentialist apologetics 
you know, when, when engaging skeptics with it, some of that shortfall can apply here because they could look at that and they could say, yeah, but the prophecy wasn't specific enough for me. It was a little bit vague, or maybe the prophet just got lucky. And all of that will add to their condemnation. But the response is, God decreed that he's going to do this. There's something else about this that's it's evidential, it's, it's elemental to our understanding rightly of the character of God. God's wrath abates because he's not a sadist. He carries out his will and justice is realized. He wins and then he's no longer wrathful. If you have learned about false gods through studying, you know, uh, pagan texts or even, you know, sort of pop culture stories, the same stories that we're just retelling over and over and over again, when there's a divine bad guy, he's, he's never satisfied. His vengeance is just a, 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 a bottomless pit and no number of souls ever satisfies it. God is righteous, and so when he has carried out his will, his wrath is satisfied. It's filled. In verse 25, it says, In just a little while, my wrath will be spent, and my anger will turn to now the destruction of the Assyrians. Throughout Isaiah, remember the character of God and the intent of God. He is telling all of, he's telling us he's going to do all of this before he does it, so that we would now see the written record that he decreed it. And it's true.